Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Professor Rodney Dietert, who is a, a professor emeritus of immunotoxicology at Cornell University. And he's going to uh, have a discussion with us today about the interrelationship between the immune system and the gut microbiome. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. So uh, what started your fascinating journey on this topic? Well, I worked for several decades uh, in uh, protecting the developing immune system. That was my main focus in research and, and uh, uh, teaching in immunology and toxicology at Cornell. And then really through serendipity, I became involved with the, the microbiome and the microbiome aspect, which we now know is so critically important to not just the immune system and its status, but uh, all of our physiological systems. And uh, that happened when I was uh, given an opportunity to write a paper that I couldn't resist. And that was uh, what would be the best biomarker or sign that you could measure in a newborn baby that would best predict whether that baby had a life filled with health or a life filled with disease. And I thought that was a, a really intriguing question uh, to develop a paper around. And I was pretty sure decades of work on the immune system that in, in the young, uh, prenatal and neonatal, that I probably had an answer. And I became very frustrated because I wrote a couple paragraphs and it was unpersuasive and uh, went to bed extremely frustrated. Uh, woke up in the middle of the night from a dream uh, with what uh, to me was a, an answer. And that was that it was the extent to which the newborn baby became complete or completed itself. And that that self-completion is really the installation of the microbiome, uh, largely from the mother, but but both parents uh, contributing um, to vaginal delivery when, when possible, skin-skin contact, and then of course followed up with uh, prolonged breastfeeding when, when possible. And that the extent to which that baby self-completes with what is really the majority of that baby's genes, more than 99% of our genes are from the microbes, not from our chromosomes and that that would be the best measure at that given point in time. Now, the baby obviously has life experiences. Uh, there, there's different diets, there are different environmental exposures. Uh, a lot happens during life, and that obviously modifies and contributes to health risks as we age. But at that point in time, that was really the, the best biomarker or sign. And my wife kind of helped me 
write and, and translate my jumbled uh, ideas from this dream. And we published a paper in an open access journal uh, on the completed self and the immune system. And uh, that really led to a whole host of, uh, of other lectures, uh, books and writing, scientific journal articles, and uh, appearance in a documentary movie, Microbirth, which uh, really was a, is a wonderful film, won the Life Science uh, Award uh, for 2014 uh, for documentary film. And uh, so that sort of launched a, a second career, really as a result of a dream, and uh, and paying attention to that versus uh, sort of the the linear progression of thirty plus years of research. Well, thanks uh, for that explanation, and it sort of conflicts with the commonly held belief that uh, newborns are born with a, an intact immune system, essentially with everything they need to fight microbial diseases. So obviously you put together a compilation material that's, that counters that narrative. So I'm wondering if the uh, original question that, that catalyzed that journey was uh, if you actually came up with a marker or was it just a, uh, I guess, a description, a historical description of the, the infant's experiences? I mean, was there something, a lab test or a, a, an assay you could do to, to make that prediction? Well, I, I think at that time, uh, no, and certainly uh, on my end of things, no single measure of one particular bacterial species, for example, uh, would be the answer. It was more the compilation of the, the, uh, the seeding process. Uh, and uh, because we, we know that, for example, with elective cesarean and with uh, antibiotic regimes, uh, both um, in, in, the, in the pregnant woman and then uh, the baby, and uh, cesarean is a, a surgery, usually with antibiotics administered, uh, and uh, that those kind of things degrade the microbiome. And so really it was the idea generally of completeness as a starting point um, for a robust microbiome to be seeded into the baby. Uh, I think since that time, and that dream was back around 2012, since that time, there are measures that are more specific that one would include in a, um, in, in a predictive, predictive map. And so I think we could get more specific now, but I should say there is no single ideal microbiome. Uh, there are many different healthy microbiomes and these uh, arose in our ancestors, depending on their geography and their diet and, and uh, uh, a whole host of, of factors that were honed over thousands of years. And, uh, and so again, for example, if I wanted, and I have in my six in my sixties, um, tried to modify my my health uh, constructively, positively by modifying my microbiome, and uh, in my case, uh, for example, it would have been a, a long reach to get an ideal. Asian microbiome, because that's not really my ancestry, or where I was growing up, or the soil I was living on, and the food I was eating, uh, it would have been uh, so, so looking at healthy microbiomes that are more connected to what my ancestors had, and has been lost through a lot of our, um, unfortunately, uh, what were short sighted practices and, and technology <laughs> installations, uh, trying to head toward that is much more constructive than me trying to completely overhaul something to, to uh, a, a group of microbes that my, my ancestors never saw. Okay. So getting back to the newborns, um, 
having a C-section puts a newborn at serious risk for developing a less than optimal microbial population. So have you uh, summarized or researched the best strategies to compensate for that at birth? I mean, what, what can the mother do? She has an elective C-section. She knows the child's not coming through a vaginal delivery. So what can they do in the delivery room to compensate for that choice? Right. And I should say that there are obviously C-sections that are medically necessary. And, and, right. and uh, so uh, Dr. Gloria Domingo Velez at, at uh, uh, Rutgers is really pioneered um, a lot of the work on uh, she uses a vaginal swab technique, uh, so it sort of banks the the mother's microbiome that would be installed and then uh, manually installs that at birth and has, has been able to show that while it's not 100% equivalent, it is very good. It is a very good representation. And uh, so those types of strategies are the direction we need to head in to really uh, aid parents and aid, aid mom in being able to deliver what's the majority of the baby's genetics. Uh, and again, I'd point out that those microbial genes are making proteins and enzymes. They're modifying what we see from the external environment. They're modifying our diet before our mammalian human cells ever see anything. And so that is actually controllable and we should. So in effect, if you look at the interference with seeding the microbiome, to me, and I've put, I wrote a paper on this for Teratology Society journals, that is like a birth defect. Uh, if you were missing an organ or an, a limb, that would be a birth defect. Here, you're missing uh, the majority of your, your genetics. Uh, and yet, that is a, a correctable birth defect. And we need to keep that in mind. So that would really be the push and the goal is to ensure the baby is as able to have uh, as soon after birth as possible, uh, the robust microbiome that would normally be there. Now, the parents can have chronic diseases and they can have microbial dysbiosis with the gut and other, uh, I should say, microbiomes go beyond the gut. They're in the skin. They're in, they're actually in breast tissue. And that in breast tissue is different from what's in breast milk. Um, your genital tract, they're at all the portals of entry uh, and uh, all the, the routes of exposure from, from a toxicological viewpoint, portals of entry from an infectious disease viewpoint. So that's really where they're concentrated. And we have an opportunity to manage those. And I think that's extremely important as early as possible in life to help manage the, mic the microbiomes in, in baby, the, in the newborn and in the child. Uh, and we know from experience that status of the microbiome dramatically impacts things like risk of asthma at age seven and, and then subsequent uh, health risks as well. Even picking up atherosclerosis markers, which you now can measure biomarkers of those uh, in, in, in children, even though the disease onset will, will probably be decades off. So how, how is the vaginal swab applied to the infant in, in order to optimize seeding the flora? Well, it, it's, uh, again, a way to install, in particular, the gut microbiome, and then skin-skin would help uh, provide the, the, uh, so is it, the is skin, it the dermal. Is it a throat swab, or is it just applied in the skin and the rectum? I mean, how is it in, uh, applied? Yeah, I, I would refer to her papers because there's been some evolution of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think, uh, and again, she, she and uh, uh, her 
Dr. Blazer uh, or, or a team, uh, a couple and a team, and uh, they've done remarkable work there at Rutgers presently. And uh, but she has uh, has really been a leader in pioneering and advocating for getting getting that installation as early as possible. If you miss those windows, then obviously, and you're absolutely correct, the the immune system, um, that, that's a dogma that we brought over from the 20th century that is incorrect. And I used to teach at Cornell when I arrived in the 70s, oh, the baby's good to go at birth, immune system's there, we can count all the cells, it looks great, but no. Now we realize that the baby is not nearly ready to go. And uh, the baby's come out of the womb. The baby had uh, unbalanced immune development while in utero because you couldn't, couldn't risk uh, graft rejection, essentially, uh, from, from the paternal antigens. So everything's skewed in terms of immune development. Uh, mom's immune system skewed a bit, too. And that's why you see different symptomology of people carrying chronic diseases during pregnancy. Um, lupus, for example, it could, may be more serious during pregnancy because of this skewing. So we have to rebalance that in the baby and the microbiome is the way to do it. That's what happens normally. If you're growing up on a farm and, and having raw milk and exposed to animals and the microbes that go with that kind of environment, it turns out that's rather protective against asthma and allergy uh, later in childhood, um, as long as you're not directly encountering pesticides on that farm that, that will eliminate the benefit. So those kind of things, those microbial exposures early in life are really what our ancestors had to develop an appropriately balanced immune system, regulated immune system. If we don't do that, then you're shifted toward a pro-inflammatory state. Your regulation of immunity is off. And uh, keep in mind, the majority of our immune system is actually located in the gut. Uh, 60 to 70% of the immune cells are in the gut. And so they're in contact with the gut microbiome rather exquisitely and intimately. And that is where the immune system gets honed. And a lot of the interconnections and regulation happen. And if we miss that, the risk of allergic and autoimmune dis and inflammatory diseases are dramatically increased. It's just a matter of which disease and in which decade it shows up uh, in terms of that, that cohort that has missed microbial seeding. So it's generally recently appreciated that 99% of all the genes in our body are microbial, either bacterial, virus, or archaea. archaea. So I'm wondering how this percentage is calculated. Is this distribution in the entire body, you know, mostly the colon, or is it's not in the cell, is it? Uh, well, it's not in the mammalian cell. Uh, hmm. No, it, it is. Uh, I mean, there's approximately 3.3 million microbial genes, or, or probably more accurately, bacterial mainly, uh, hmm. that a given individual will carry. So 3.3 million, the chromosomal genes, which by the way, were analyzed through the Human Genome Project that was supposed to solve most of our disease problems, turned out to be underwhelming. It's about 22 to 25,000. And the 22,000 is only about 2,000 more than uh, earthworms genome. So that, you know, we can't get too arrogant when you think about that. We're just marginally above an earthworm in terms of chromosomal genes. Uh, so the 3.3 million is, again, means you're more than 99% genetically microbial. And across 
the entire population of humans, they're just under 10 million different microbial genes that are carried. So a given individual doesn't have everything that's represented on, on earth among, among humans. Uh, but it turns out, again, it's not just us. I mean, Earth's a microbial planet, uh, a bacterial planet primarily. And that is a predominant life form. And any complex organism on Earth, including plants, other animals, uh, have microbiomes. And uh, so that is really the, the state of how things work. And uh, I, in most of my presentations now, I start off by showing about five 20th century scientific dogmas that need to be discarded uh, because they are holding us back from actually better health. And one of those is this idea about the baby having an immune system that's uh, just ready to meet the world and ready for everything. Um, there are several others. For example, the microbiome, that 99% is so important in crafting what happens to the immune system and other physiological systems that you can literally create different species based on microbial immune interactions. And I was always taught, I probably taught in my genetics teachings at Cornell in the 70s, that uh, more a Darwinian or a Charles Darwin based thing that, well, uh, the chromosomes carry the genes. And when there's incompatibilities in chromosomes, the hybrid is, is either lethal, dies, or is sterile, can't reproduce. And this is how, how we look at species. And it turns out that's not the only way these things happen. Uh, in fact, the microbiome has to have some compatibility with the immune system as they're co-maturing. And where you get microbiomes that are really foreign to an immune system, the immune system responds with a massive inflammatory response. So there's a self-attack and the hybrid dies. And, and there are a couple different labs that have worked on different species incompatibilities. And they can show that basically they can take what are different species or different subspecies? And they treat those animals with antibiotics, wipe out the microbiome, and now the species barrier disappears. So who would have ever thought that the microbiome immune interaction is so biologically sacred that it leads to separation of species or not, depending on the status? So that's how important and critical in the evolution of life on Earth and in, in our own uh, human existence, that interaction is. So we can manage that. We need to ecologically manage the microbiome immune interaction at the gut interface and, and with the skin and in the respiratory tract and the urogenital tract and so right. forth. Yeah, before we go there, I just had a quick question on the, the number of genes and actually not being as critical, because as you pointed out, there's not quite a bit of difference between us and many other species that are lower on the, the sodium pole, so to speak. So I'm wondering uh, if there is a interaction between the microbes and the epigenetic expression of our genes. Oh, absolutely. And uh, there are numerous examples of this, but I mean, some of the, some of the premier uh, researchers, I'd mentioned Curtis Claussen, who was president of the Society of Toxicology is sort of the liver uh, liver guru in terms of liver metabolism and protecting the liver and toxicity and the like. And he really, uh, several years ago, shifted over a focus to the microbiome metabolism. And why? Well, why is because they've got the majority of the genes and they epigenetically, through a, a couple different routes, can influence liver metabolism as well. So the microbes, again, keep in mind, they're sitting 
they, they see our food first. They see our environmental chemicals first. They see drugs through most routes of uh, administration first. And what they do with those determines what the body sees. And so they're our gatekeeper. They're our filter for our whole environmental existence. And as a result, it's important to know what, what happens there. And uh, an example is cancer therapeutics. Uh, most of those have to be metabolized by the microbiome. And if only we manage the microbiome more effectively in patients, we, are, we very likely could increase the, the efficacy of those drugs across a population of patients. So I think the UK said they're, they're about 50% effective was one of their recent calculations. That could be increased because we've ignored the microbiome and its role, even though these drugs don't work in, in, unless they're metabolized by the microbiome. Okay, good. Historically, the thymus gland has been known to be really important for the development of the immune system, but there seems to be an emerging appreciation that because of the fact that two thirds of our immune system is located in our, uh, in our gut, that that may be even more important. So I'm wondering how you would compare the two, especially to an aging population where it seems like immunosenescence or the deterioration of the immune system due to aging uh, seems to be due to thymic evolution. So uh, do you, can you compensate for the normal aging deterioration of thymus gland with up improving the competency of the, the, the gut microbiome? Uh, to some extent, ab absolutely. And first of all, I should say that the idea that we have immune senescence, and, and I think it, oh, a couple of years ago, I, I was involved with a paper on aging of the immune system. Aging of the immune system is really uh, dependent upon your, your lifetime diet in large part. So you don't have to buy into the fact that uh, what, you know, that there is only one end uh, for an 80 year old's immune system and it's uh, senescence and, and uh, lower responses to certain infe infectious disease agents and uh, more risk of autoreactivity. And, uh, you know, that you, you really don't have to buy that because it is largely influenced by uh, diet and microbial metabolism. And so people are finding, in fact, that if you start installing some of the earlier life uh, microbes that kind of have evolved out of our gut through, well, probably decades of polypharmacy, in my opinion. I mean, uh, you have to keep in mind, drug safety never included the microbiome until recently. And uh, a lot of you know, uh, 25 to 50% of all the, the drugs, including over-the-counter, uh, damage the microbiome and in very predictable ways for those that have been examined. So the more that we have piled on uh, a number of, of uh, drugs that never were screened for what they were doing to the microbes, uh, the, the more degradation occurred with aging. So you combine, combine that with diet and with metabolism of diet, again, being altered, and you'll get to immune senescence. But it's not a given. It doesn't have to work that way. So relative to the, the uh, 
use of gut and other locations, yes, you can change things like metabolic syndrome, for example. Uh, there, there's some remarkable findings where if you really focus on certain cell populations in adipose tissue and the gut integrity and, and barrier function and some of the, the microbial gatekeepers like Ackermansia and others that are, that are so critical for uh, mucin uh, layer protection in the gut and for barrier integrity that you can you can do a lot with that uh, and some dietary shifts in combination to really reverse things in, in, in a useful way. Uh, now, as always, when you're dealing with the immune system and inflammation, it's a matter of tissue integrity and the question of whether whether you've so damaged an organ that it's it's going to be tough to come back from. So you want to you want to make these corrections before you've really lost completely lost airway function or lost you know um, sure. gut yeah. gut function because of massive inflammatory damage over decades. It seems one of the simple strategies is one we've been promoting for quite some time now is to avoid antibiotics, not necessarily the ones that are prescribed for you. That's certainly an important component. Sometimes can be life-saving, although that's, in my view, tends to be exception rather than the rule. More often than not, they're damaging. Uh, but 80% of the ones that we're exposed to are through the ones that are fed into industrially uh, fed uh, uh, cable animals, confined animal feeding operations. So Avoid, that's one of the reasons why we strongly support and recommend eating organic, uh, largely because of avoiding these, these antibiotics, but not only the antibiotics, but the antibiotic resistant organisms that, that come embedded in, with that, the, that type of meat. Uh, and then, of course, uh, this emphasis now with the COVID pandemic on continuously cleaning your hands and using sanitizers that have antibiotics in them like triclosan which i think should be banned but nevertheless it still exists so people think they're killing the organism but actually they're killing them their immune system with these dangerous chemicals so i'm wondering if you can elaborate on that oh absolutely i'm I'm thrilled to have that opportunity so i'm a big fan of regenerative agriculture Uh, i have i'm emeritus now not uh back on the cornell campus but out where i can have high vitamin D levels where we can have a longer growing season. We can grow a lot of our own uh, uh, food or, or at least try to make a dent there in that, that regard. And so I, you have to support uh, the entire body and you have to support the immune system as well. And uh, I'd point out that uh, for example, uh, glyphosate or glyphosate uh, is an antimicrobial. It's labeled as an antimicrobial. So it's working through the food system. It's first destroying soil microbes and then plant microbes and get, uh, gets into animals and gets into us and we're exposed directly and we're exposed through our food. And it's horrific. Uh, again, it's one of the, uh, it's widespread. And it's just one example. You can take the plasticizers, bisphenol A and others, where these things were never, uh, never screened properly uh, and the attention to the microbiome was never given and that's a huge mistake and we need to reverse that immediately but uh, no I'm a big proponent of regenerative agriculture managing and tending uh, diversity of plants uh, soil microbes and all the way through the the, the food systems uh, getting the most out of the, the foods that we're going to eat in terms of composition uh, and uh, I uh, organic and natural health is is a huge 
opportunity for us to apply more broadly and more extensively and for people to understand uh, the, the, the benefits of food produced in these ways and, and for the entire system as well. So I, I look at ecological management of, of microbes and, and robust diversity of plants, animals, and, and our, our food production as, as critical. So I, I'd like to point out that even with the COVID-19 pandemic that we're, we're facing at the moment, that it is in fact the cytokine storm. It is an improper host immune response that is what leads to lung pathology and increased risk of death. And yet there's been almost no attention paid to the multiple factors that influence the immune system and influence inflammation. Uh, and also what's called colonization resistance. So we carry coronaviruses in our airways. Almost everybody has some coronavirus in the airways sitting there not causing disease because they have a good airway microbiome. They have a good lung microbiome and it's being managed and they're doing healthy things. They're getting exercise. They're getting outside. They're getting vitamin D. They're going to the beach unless various governors and the like impose rules that don't let you do that. So I would contend that it's one thing to take a look at a, a pathogen and its spread and the risk of that. And it's another thing to actually take a look by risk analysis. And there are professionals, there's a society of risk analysis that we really need to pay more attention to, that those individuals look at all the, all the health risks and all of the, the benefits that can come from various practices and in their totality. And that's what we should have done and we certainly should be doing now because people are, are going to either live or die, not just because of COVID-19, but because of metabolic syndrome, because of heart disease, because uh, of a whole host of other chronic diseases uh, that are either the, the management is interrupted or they're at more vulnerable risk because they're pro-inflammatory already. And very little of this has ever come, has even been considered. So, you know, really the opportunity for us to grow our own food, get outside, uh, visit animal farms and have microbial exposures in a healthy way uh, and, and uh, increase our vitamin D uh, and tend to our immune system and our overall health is absolutely critical. And the more robust the microbiome, the better the colonization resistance we have against um, these pathogens, including the secondary bacterial infections that will arise in the, in the mix of changing the lung environment and the pro-inflammatory state. So we should have been doing that from the word go. But unfortunately, we have some scientists and we have some bureaucrats that focused in one place and didn't really focus, in my opinion, on human health. Yeah, just recently, <clears throat> in the last few days, the World Health Organization has actually retracted their recommendation of a lockdowns now. So it seems like we're going back in the sensible direction. We finally got some sanity in, on board. But you had mentioned that you were part of the organic and natural, and um, most people don't have any clue what that is but it's actually a trade association in the health food or in the natural foods industry uh, and supplements. So uh, we're strongly in support of that association. We think it's the best one out there and, and thankfully is gaining wide acceptance and adoption and appreciation of, the, of what it's able to do. So I'm wondering if, if uh, in what capacity you're doing that and have you, 
it, it's it's I'm glad you're out of Cornell because you know Cornell has been tied very very deeply to Bill Gates Foundation and the Alliance for Science and the destruction of science as we know it. So I'm I'm glad you escaped that and are working in regenerative agriculture. But what are you, what are you specifically doing and where are you? Well, I, I, my connection is really through the opportunity to, to present at these conferences, to visit, and to see the, the terrific participation from such a diverse group of experts, professionals, practitioners. And, and so when you combine things like the, the regenerative agriculture group and organic and natural health, and you see everything from ranchers and farmers through to uh, ecologists, uh, soil plant animal, uh, and then every type of uh, medical doctor and profession uh, who are really looking at integrative and holistic ways to benefit human health individually and across populations. It's, it's just, it's mind blowing. And, and it's so encouraging. Uh, and I think that's where our future lies really. And so I've only ha- I've only dipped my toe in there by being very fortunate to be invited to present at conferences, but to really attend the presentations and participate in group discussions. And it is uh, something I would encourage everyone to, to get introduced to and to, to find people. Uh, we, know, we know, for example, uh, nearby, a, a wonderful group uh, producing uh, organic uh, meats uh, grown there and uh, in, in using regenerative agriculture. And you just, uh, through the, the phytochemicals that are stored in the meat and, and the, the differences in what you're actually getting in terms of nutrition, um, it, it's, it's been uh, glorious for us. And uh, you combine that with our trying to grow some of our own crops uh, on, a, on a small scale, but better than we used to be able to do. And that uh, is, is a wonderful combination. So people can do things uh, on a small scale for themselves, but they also can support uh, the the companies and the individuals and the uh, uh, food producers who are following this path as opposed to, as you say, uh, prophylactic use of antibiotics and animal feed. And I, I think I was published in a Christian Science Monitor opinion piece or article back in the 90s railing against that. I would say that people don't realize that agri- it isn't that large-scale agriculture has a history only of that. In fact, the idea of using probiotics for colonization resistance uh, was impactful in our having a surviving poultry industry. Um, I used to, my first start was actually working on young young chickens and their better natural health. And then I moved over to children during my career in terms of focus. Uh, but in the 80s, in the early 90s, there was a salmonella outbreak and it was being uh, chickens were infecting each other, but it was going through the oviduct and infect, in, infecting, again, new hatched chicks. And it was also a food safety issue because it was infecting humans. It was zoonotic. And what they found is that they could load up these birds because they controlled the environment totally. They controlled the diet and they could load them up with lactobacillus acidophilus and it, it blocked salmonella in this case and and those products are still out there and they're used and you never hear about that you don't realize that egg consumption was essentially saved when it was in dire straits back in the 80s and 90s early 90s because of massive probiotic interventions 
How about that? So we now know that we can do similar things in humans, and and there are some wonderful products out there, uh, and when particularly when supported by prebiotics, the food for the microbes, uh, that uh, can can really be beneficial. And so I think uh, I, I think this shows that we need to be managing how we do how we produce our food. Uh, we need to be recognizing the benefits of a variety of supplements. And, and by the way, we're big fans of the Mercola products uh, and have been for decades. And so I think that this is, this is what's going to help get us out of the polypharmacy rut that we've been in, quite frankly. Okay. I, I couldn't agree more. So we focused the first half of this uh, dialogue with the painting the framework as to why the uh, paying attention to the microbes in the gut is so important for your immune capacity, immune competency. So I'd like to get into some real practical strategies. We've already mentioned several, which is the elimination of any potential antibiotic exposure, uh, and then uh, compensating for the ones uh, at birth, a C-section by uh, doing the vaginal swabs, installation of the flora to seed, seed the baby with the, with the normal flora. But um, it's so of course eating organic exclusively, but what are some of the other specific ones? You know, when, when you were talking about improving the immune competency of the uh, microbes in the gut, or the uh, to, as opposed to the thymus, you were suggesting that we go to an earlier stage in our life before they were devastated by these exposures to the environmental toxins and antibiotics. So, is there an assay that you can do? because uh, there's so many of them out there that sort of paints an accurate picture of where you're at. And then once you understand where you're at, then target a specific uh, population of, of bacteria to complement that. Or do you just recommend a, a less expensive shotgun approach to uh, generically help uh, improve the, uh, the, the populations in the gut? Well, I think it's... Uh contextual. Uh, so, for example, I would say that even with the uncertainties and, and the different ways you can approach microbiome analysis, that if we're going to have annual checkups and we're going to be banking uh, blood uh, profiles of a whole variety of factors, and that'll be part of your annual record, how can we not be having any microbiome information <laughs> based on patients? And so knowing where you are is extremely useful. Uh, and so that might be more of a shotgun approach just to keep track of where you are. And I'll give an example. Within my own family, we had a family member who was administered uh, a drug that was not really supposed to be very wide, you know, broad spectrum in effects and side effects in particular. It really shouldn't have damaged the microbiome. But we could see because we were doing regular microbiome analysis that it did. It devastated uh, the microbiome. And it took nine months of very judiciously building that back to get it back to where it had been. And so this was, again, uh, the best medical information at the time said, oh, this would be good. You're not going to do anything to your microbiome. Well, yes, that happened. And it was very clearly tied to the drug because there had been very frequent analyses done. So I think that, uh, you know, the, the 
physician managing a, per, uh, a patient should have that information available. For example, here's, here's just one case that's kind of historic. Digoxin, the heart, long-standing heart medication, is required to be metabolized by one specific bacterial species. Now, depending on the level of that species that you have in your gut, the drug will either be ineffective because of the metabolic level, it will be effective, or it will be toxic and kill the patient. And that is known based on just the idea that the the range of digoxin is, is a bit difficult. It's a bit of a problem in terms of prescribing, even though it's, it can be an effective drug. So knowing that and knowing it's one specific bacterium, which could be measured, could be supplemented, the level could be changed, or the drug level could be changed. Why wouldn't you do that if you were going to administer this type of drug? And then you go back to things like knowing that NSAIDs damage the microbiome if they're taken for any prolonged period of time at high enough levels. And not only do it do they, but uh, a microbiologist can tell you what NSAID you've been taking because they have a different pattern, different NSAID NSAIDs have different patterns of damage. And then you might be at risk for gastric ulcer. So you go to proton pump inhibitors, they damage a different part of the microbiome in the gut in a very specific way. So we can, we can do several things. Knowing where you are annually with your microbiome is useful because you can see big changes that could have been environmental chemical damage, could have been diet, could have been lifestyle changes, uh, uh, a whole host of reasons how you got there. But your, your managing physician needs to know that. And in addition, uh, the contextual is if you were going to give a particular drug like a cancer therapeutic, why not increase that 50% efficacy rate and include that patient in, in a success story? So we can eliminate side effects from some of the existing drugs or reduce them, the, the prevalence of those, uh, the, the severity of those. Uh, we can make efficacy increase where there are useful drugs that could be more useful. Uh, but, and in any new drug, it needs to work. I mean, it's got to be in the context of the microbiome. Uh, we can't really allow those things to come on the market without that knowledge. That just needs to be part of it. And we've right. advocated that. I, uh, we had a, a 2015 paper in toxicological sciences with Dr. Ellen Silvergeld in public health at Johns Hopkins. And she and I basically said, we get to redo toxicology because we didn't do it right. We did it for the human mammal. We didn't do it for the human superorganism and the 99% microbial genes. So I think those are, so, so there should be a standard generic analyses with, you know, uh, probably a, a shotgun type of approach that gives you some idea where the patient stands, patient knows, patient can look at diet and, and changes. But you, if you don't know where you are, you don't know where you, you might be going and you don't know where you would want to go. And so knowing where you are is useful and keeping track of those things. And then you have, you have just as you would on blood profiles and other measures in the patient, you have an annual uh, analyses that then helps direct uh, both preventative and therapeutic approaches. So it's, it seems like you're a great fan of doing these assays. Uh, so in the obvious next question is that's a generic recommendation. There's a fairly significant number of companies out there to provide these testing services. Uh, and there can be broad based broadly into doing the, they're, they're taking advantage of the 
genetic analysis technologies developed so they can do this much better than actually culturing the organisms out and identifying them. That would be way too costly and ineffective, but they, they essentially measure the DNA. At least some of them do. They measure DNA, can identify okay. the species as a result of that. But there's others that actually measure the, the RNA. So I'm wondering, based on the, 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 the relatively large number of companies that do this, if there's any that, that you found to be particularly beneficial or helpful, or do you just recommend find one and stick with it and use that for your serial and, sub, and, and subsequent follow-ups? Uh, I, I wouldn't give a specific recommendation on a, on a, on a single company and or want to be in that position of touting that. So I think what you said at the end is, is the best that identify one that has uh, a good reputation that's shown to be uh, where there's utility in what's been generated. And then because there is variation, uh, consider sticking with that for a while. And I think that would be the, uh, a useful approach. There are, there are numerous good companies, but I'm not going to tout one over the other. And I, sh I do want to self-identify that I have uh, consulted for a probiotic company, uh, Seed in Ventura, California, uh, and just to identify that I have that, that connection there. They're not in the analysis business, but I uh, uh, would mention that in terms of where my uh, disclosures. Uh, so I think, I think finding a good company and then and then uh, persisting with that, because if you go to another company, you, then you immediately, then you don't know if you saw a change in your annual evaluation or in a nine month, um, I mean, a three month period, uh, whether that was due to changing companies or changing diet, <laughs> for example. Yeah. So, I mean, how stable are these analyses? Because uh, uh, there are certain costs to doing these. And uh, obviously, people aren't going to be doing them every day or every week or month. You probably it's like an annual thing, maybe yeah. semi-annual. So, it, are they relatively stable, or are they is there quite a bit of volatility with respect to the populations that are growing based on the food you ate? Say, had a binge of of junk food, and could you radically change your your populations almost overnight, or is it something is that shift something more gradual? Uh, there again, I think the data would say that, uh, depending on where you are with your microbiome, uh, if, if you have a particularly robust microbiome, you're actually probably more resilient to a junk food weekend. Um, if you are already dysbiotic or you're weakened in your microbiome because of chronic conditions and polypharmacy and the like, uh, uh, glyphosate exposures, then uh, you probably are pretty vulnerable to further shifts. Again, so it's sort of how, um, how, um, how well are you seeded with a robust diversity? And then it, it's, again, like forest management in ecology or coral reef management. Uh, and if you've got a coral reef that's already damaged and sick, then it, is, it isn't going to take much to really put it over the top in terms of of um, serious changes. And this would be the same for us in terms of immune inflammation, pathology, and, the, and, and, and or an infectious agent getting a foothold, whereas it wouldn't otherwise. Now, one thing I would mention is that uh, the, the RNA or the metabolic analysis is extremely useful. I mean, that is, and that is sort of a decision that is still out there, whether you go with the genes or whether you go with the, the metabolic profile. And here's an example. People ask a useful question on this colonization resistance. And that is, if you had a really critical pathogen uh, that was 
uh, of concern for humans, how many bacteria would it actually take in your gut to give you the protection as if you had uh, uh, thousands and, and this terrific ro robust diversity there? What's, what would you actually need if you started from almost nothing and just had a few bacteria? And the answer was uh, given in a, it was a mouse model, but it was a human pathogen and, and installing bacteria to show protection against the human pathogen just by the microbes in place blocking a, uh, a salmonella uh, pathogen from getting a, a foothold and taking off. And what they found surprisingly is if they used metabolically matched bacteria that they had done trying to create an ecological niche, an environment of metabolism that would stop salmonella, it took as few as 15 bacteria, if you can imagine. Now that's only one nevertheless important pathogen in humans, we have a lot of pathogens to resist, but that suggests that we that we can have terrific benefit by paying attention to what's called colonization resistance. And that is using the natural barriers of our friendly microbes to resist pathogens from being able to actually get started. If you do that, then the immune system's your neck, your fallback, but you're you're not relying necessarily on the barrier and the immune system in every case. You actually have, you know, probably 95% of your infections uh, that would happen never happen because you've maintained the friendly microbes and they're doing their job and just keeping everything else from getting started. Yeah, a classic example of competitive inhibition. Absolutely. But, yeah, so there's, I'd like to get into some specifics uh, with respect to strains, because there's two functions of the vac of the microbial populations that are important. One is production of butyrate, which is a nutrient for the intestine, and then uh, mucin for the protect protection. It's a, the layer that protects the intestine. So, are there any strains that would produce those? And and I think butyrate is particularly useful. I've always found it intriguing because it's so close to one of the ketones, a major ketone. Uh, it only changes by a hydroxyl position at, one, at a certain area because it's beta-hydroxybutyrate would be one of the most common ketones. So um, are there any strains that, that help in particularly to produce the butyrate and the mucin production? Yeah, that's, a, that's an amazing question because we recently just started a new probiotic for us that, uh, and um, I know uh, my wife has already seen some dramatic results and it's a, a butyrate producer. And um, uh, keep in mind, ideally, you'd like to see these installed in your gut, but even in situations where you sort of have a pass-through of the microbes, if they're metabolizing and you have a sufficient level of them, you can you can have metabolic benefit from those as well. So uh, there are pro there are probiotics uh, that will give you very specific metabolic end results. And these can be extremely useful. And again, part of that is knowing where you are and whether additional butyrate would be useful. Uh, so I think that you're, that that's exactly the right question, exactly the right direction to be taking. And that's where you do get some targeting, but that's still based on having an understanding of where you are metabolically and in terms of your microbiome. Now, I, I did want to mention, since you brought up butyrate, uh, that uh, there are also, keep in mind that neurotransmitters, there, there are more of those neuroactive pep peptides, neurotransmitters produced in the gut than in the brain. And that while gut enterocytes are making these, uh, that that's regulated in part by the micro, gut microbiome, but also the gut microbes, the gut bacteria make 
neuroactive peptides and neurotransmitters. And there's a whole field that's been developed called psychobiotics. And among those are John Cryan and Tim Dynan at University College Cork in Ireland, uh, pioneers in this area. Uh, there are other researchers doing working on it too. But they have found that there's specific bacterial species and strains that will produce serotonin, others will produce dopamine, some produce GABA, acetylcholine, and you can go down the whole line of neuromodifying neuro, neurochemicals uh, that can address things like major depressive disorder. And well, uh, simply a, by adjusting the level of these, I have you a, can a question, your question neurochemistry. On this, on yeah, this. I'm sorry. It is my understanding that these, there's no question that the bulk of the neurotransmitters are produced in the gut, but the, the challenge with that understanding, because I, I was confused on this earlier, is that most all of those neurotransmitters are unable to penetrate the blood-brain barrier. They don't go into the brain. Well, there are, there are, I think, three different routes that have been described for how these can modify brain, brain physiology. Okay. But and so people, I mean, again, the, the, the trials that have been done are showing that you really, if you if you change those levels in the gut, you get uh, you get some of those effects that you would predict in terms of other ways to measure neuro, uh, neurological so function so and it, physiology. It does, it, it does it indirectly then. Uh, some of those are indirect. Yeah. Okay. So I th I think that th th the point I would make there is as with butyrate, that these are not new drugs that you're administering, administering that the body hasn't seen, you're putting in something where you're changing the balance, you're changing the prevalence of uh, microbes that are metabolizing in a particular way. So they may be producing butyrate, or if, if, if again, it's uh, serotonin or dopamine, or you're, you're changing those balances of what's already there, and you're getting physiological benefit or, or bringing your body back into balance in a useful way and not having to rely on what are pretty hardcore drugs in some cases with uh, very problematic side effects. So I think this whole idea of, yes, getting at, um, you know, what are epigenetic regulators and amazing people didn't used to think things like butyrate, these small molecules were doing anything. And they're, they're quite remarkable in their, in their effects. And so it's, it's an area where we need to pay a lot of attention. Okay, good. Um, one of the areas I'd like to review is the leaky, leaky gut, which uh, many years ago was thought not to exist by most conventional physicians, but now it's pretty well accepted that this is a in fact, indeed, a clinical entity and contributes to a lot of pathology. So uh, there are, there's one strategy I know that works for sure. And I just want to mention here and get your take on it, but that's vitamin D. Uh, because I've done a lot of study on this and it's, uh, it, it upregulates the innate immune systems and increases your body's ability to uh, repair that epithelial cell damage and that repair those uh, uh, gaps in, the, in the, the barriers to perform a protective infection. That's probably one of the main reasons why vitamin D is so effective for the immune system. So I'm wondering if you can comment on that. And then I have another uh, way that I've heard recently could be useful, which is uh, sim something as simple as bicarb. It helps uh, improve the leaky gut function. No, I, I think that's absolutely correct. And uh, the other thing is to, in, in you're repairing it, but you also, this is where there some of these uh, what are called keystone species bacteria, uh, acromancia, uh, 
is one of these, the genus Acromancia, is one of these that's involved with mucin regulation. There are only a couple of bacteria that really do that. Uh, and uh, so managing those and managing the levels of those is critical in, in, you know, even as you're repairing some of the cell damage, you've got to maintain a mucin layer and keep the bacteria that were would produce immune inflammation at the barrier and then which is contributing to the damage there uh, keep them at a respectable distance where they need to really be in your gut uh, keep in mind the gut is really the external to your body that's the outside so they're sitting there connecting you to the external environment but they're really um, it, it's a tube and they're kind of on the on the outside and you need to keep them there and not penetrating through the barrier in ways that are going to to cause the immune system to self-damage. Great. Well, that's lots of good information. Uh, with respect to the bicarb, I mean, are you in agreement with that in the vitamin D? Uh, uh, yes. And, yes. And, and the bicarb, um, I mean, typically we think of sodium bicarb, baking soda, which is inexpensive and uh, easy to get, but uh, I'm a particular fan of potassium bicarb because mm -hmm. most of us just have potentially too much exposure to excess sodium. So, and not enough potassium. So I think it's a little better strategy. I personally take about a half a teaspoon of potassium bicarb three times a day and use the urinary pH uh, to monitor and make sure that's the right dose for me, because it could be completely different for someone else could be half or a quarter of the dose or four times the dose for someone else. So uh, the, the urine pH is about seven, which, which is neutral and you know, really something to strive for. It also prevents leaching of minerals from your bone to compensate for the acidity in, in, a, in a normal acidic urine. So, so any comments on using that therapeutically? Well, I, I, I'm not, first of all, I, I need to say I'm not an MD. So there's not yeah. medical advice. If I say anything, it's, it's metabolic uh, opinions. So uh, I think it's extremely important. Yes, the, the, the pH measurement, because there's no one size fits all on uh, the way we interact with the environment and food and, and, uh, and drugs. And, and again, metabolic shifters, in this case, uh, sodium bicarbonate as well. So monitoring an endpoint that's going to tell you whether this is enough, too little, or too much is, is really useful uh, because uh, what, what works for one person where they're starting from uh, versus another is, 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 can be widely variable. And I think that that's uh, hugely useful advice. Uh, in, in what you're describing. So I, I would say that's, that's the case always when you're coming to food in the food diet environment and the microbiome. Um, again, even, you know, you can go back to things like arsenic and drinking water and actually an individual's risk from a heavy bolus of arsenic in drinking water is determined by the gut microbiome because it depends on the metabolic profile that comes out of that exposure. And so again, what's, uh, it's not, that is not to say arsenic and drinking water is safe. It's to say that the ramifications of a good exposure to that, a uh, heavy exposure to that is going to depend on what's sitting in your gut. And in this case, you're saying the exact 
regime for sodium for potassium bicarbonate is something that you can evaluate based on this in, you know, wonderful downstream endpoint of uh, pH urine pH. So uh, really, really useful in describing that. All right. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, connect with you, but are there any closing statements or uh, points you'd like to emphasize? Well, I just uh, encourage people to do things that support their whole body, do things that support their immune system, even as they're um, focused on a, a specific disease or a specific pathogen. And keep in mind, these are interconnected. So we're now realizing that the boundary between infectious diseases and what we're called are communicable and non-communicable diseases may not be as rigid as we used to think because people have been able to show that you install the wrong microbe into your gut microbiome and one that's not very robust and dysfunctional, uh, you probably can wind up with a predictable increased risk of very specific so-called non-communicable or chronic diseases. And we never thought that was the case, but there's evidence that's emerging really within the last couple of years that, uh, that these are all about microbial management, understanding our body, understanding our genetics, and taking advantage of that to be naturally healthy. All right. Well, thank you for your insights and your wisdom. Greatly appreciate it. Well, thank and, you for all you do, Dr. McCullough. Oh, you're most welcome.